Good morning, everyone. You can open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14 this morning. As we come to the end of our study of the book of 1 Peter. Next week, we'll begin a sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. And I encourage you, as we continue throughout this fall, that you would keep up with what we do each week as we send out the preparing for the Lord's Day. In particular, as we go through the sermon series that we are going into this fall, each week we'll be calling you to respond to the sermon in very concrete ways. And so we ask that you would come prepared each week to hear as we go through this sermon series. But this morning we come now to the conclusion of our study of First Peter. In verses 12 through 14, as in many of your Bibles you'll see, it says final greetings. And in many ways we might look at these verses and think that they're kind of throwaway verses, a little way just to end, to tidy it all up. And yet, in these verses, we see more than just a quick conclusion to what has been written, but rather a summary and an exhortation to live according to the grace that has been spoken, that has been written about, which has been inspired by God's Holy Spirit. So let us turn our attention now to God's Holy Word. By Silvanus... A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you with grateful hearts for your faithfulness to us over these last several months as we have turned our attention to this book of 1 Peter. We pray, Lord, that as we come to the conclusion of it, that the sermons, that the messages that we have heard over these last several months, Lord, would be sealed to our hearts, that they would be confirmed in our lives, and that we would walk in this true grace. And we pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. This past week, in the office, Pastor Ron looked over at my wrist and asked me, Is that a Rolex? As many of you know, this past winter, my grandfather, my mother's father, died. And he was indeed a collector of wristwatches and left a few dozen to give to his children and grandchildren. And the watch that I was wearing this week was from his collection. However, it is not a Rolex. It was designed to look kind of like a Rolex Submariner, but alas, it's merely just a nice imitation made by Invicta. Yet, within my grandfather's collection was a Rolex watch. Or at least it claimed to be one. 
It had the name Rolex on the face. It had the Rolex logo on the clasp. It looked just like the real thing to a casual observer. And so there was this slight hope that my grandfather, who repaired telephone lines for AT&T his whole career, somehow obtained a $30,000 watch. Many times in life it's difficult for us especially when our emotions are involved to distinguish between what is genuine and what is not. It's hard to see beyond the outward appearance to the inner reality. I'm sure that you have experienced this in some way throughout your life. Maybe something as meaningless as a shirt with an expensive logo but a cheap label. A plumber who claims to be the best in town but leaves leaky faucets. A friend that declares loyalty but speaks poorly about you behind your back. In the world of religion and spirituality, in the world of Christianity, there are many knockoffs. There are many fakes. There are many who would proclaim to know the way of truth, but behind the facade of holiness is a pit of darkness and deception. The Lord Jesus warned His people, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The Apostle Paul taught that there are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In this world, there are many imposters. There are many who would seek to deceive. And so how are we to know what is real in this world? How can we tell if the message of a prophet, the message of a pastor, the message of a teacher is true or merely just a cheap imitation? In Peter's concluding words to the church in verse 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. That this. What does he mean by this? He says, this is the true grace of God. What is this? What is this true grace? Well, it is what he has written. What he has written, what we have been studying over this past nine months, this letter of 1 Peter is the true grace of God. Yes, there are many imposters. There are charlatans, false prophets, false apostles, wolves in sheep's clothing, disguising themselves as angels of light. But the Word of God recorded for us in the letter of 1 Peter is the authentic message of the Gospel. It is the real deal. It is genuine. If you test it, it will hold. If you investigate it, you will find it is consistent. What Peter has declared throughout this letter is the true grace of God. And as we come to the close of our study of 1 Peter, we will see that there are marks, ways to distinguish the true grace of God. And in particular, we will see three ways that true grace is made known. Now, the primary and most consistently misunderstood mark of true grace is what it costs. When Peter uses the word grace, what is he what he is referring to rather is the salvation that has been won for God's children through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is his work through Jesus to save us from sin and bring us into his eternal 
kingdom. So what is the cost of this grace? Well, it costs a great deal. For the true grace that we have received in God through Jesus Christ has been purchased for us by the infinitely worthy blood of Jesus. You see, true grace was earned through the work of Jesus Christ to secure forgiveness and eternal blessing. This is what Peter said throughout his letter. And in particular, in chapter 1, he said, you were ransomed. That means you were bought, you were purchased. An exchange was made. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Right? You were bought, you were purchased, not with something like gold or silver, which happened to be the most valuable things in the world but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the true grace of God costs the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus. Forgiveness is not free. Eternal blessing must be earned through righteousness and obedience. But here is the true gospel. Here is the true grace of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, says the Apostle Paul, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. By His life of righteousness and love and obedience, Jesus earned the right to eternal life. He earned blessing. But for our sake, He gave up His life. He gave up His blood so that we who are poor, so that we who have nothing, we who are weak, we who are sinful, we who could not earn anything for ourselves, might become rich. This is the true grace of God. The grace that was earned by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the grace that was given to His people freely. For the grace of forgiveness cost Jesus His blood, His life, His all. But it cost us absolutely nothing. You see, true grace is known because it is all of Jesus Christ and nothing of us. It is all His righteousness and none of ours. It is all His obedience and none of ours. It is all His work, all His sacrifice, all His wealth and none of ours that earns forgiveness and life. And this is how you can tell if grace is real or fake. If it is not genuine, if there is even a hint of your worth, your work in the forgiveness and the acceptance of the gospel, then it's not real. How much do we contribute to our salvation? What of your works can you add? Do you add a ceremony? Have you added a ritual to receive the grace of God in Christ? Do you need to make a donation or change a behavior? To receive the grace of God, do you need to prove your devotion by some act of faith? Consistently, the Word of God says, no, may it never be. For the true grace of God comes to us fully paid by Jesus Christ. 
In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. As Jonathan Edwards once stated, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. How can you tell the difference between false and true grace? True grace comes completely and totally from Jesus Christ alone. True grace comes freely. Our Reformed forefathers called this truth sola gratia. That is, saved by grace alone. And yet our understanding of true grace would be incomplete. It would be anemic if we left it there. For grace comes to us completely free, yet grace demands our all. Grace receives us just as we are, but true grace changes us forever. Throughout this letter, the Apostle Peter has not only proclaimed the free nature of grace, but also the power that grace brings towards holiness. Even as he says in verse 12 of our text, that throughout this letter, this true grace, that he has been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. You see, true grace brings the fruits of obedience and holiness. In chapter 1, Peter says that we have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ for obedience. Later, he says that as children of God, we must be holy as God is holy. In chapter 2 of the text, we read, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why? Why did Jesus bear our sins on the tree, on the cross? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How can you tell the difference between the genuine grace of God and the fake grace of the world? True grace empowers and leads to holiness. True grace evidences itself in lives that are changed. True grace is seen, is displayed by what it produces in our lives. In a world that is hostile to the work of Christ, we must understand that true grace is evidenced in our standing firm in it. When the Lord warned us of wolves in sheep's clothing, He did not leave us without a means to identify false prophets, false grace. Rather, He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, right? You can distinguish them. You can tell who these false proclaimers of grace are. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here we must be very precise. So you need to listen to this, right? If you've tuned out, there, oh man, I got a lot of faces looking up. A lot of tuner-outers. Listen to this. We cannot confuse what I'll call the root of grace 
and the fruit of grace. The root of grace, where it comes from, how it begins, how it finds a place in our life, where all power and strength and nourishment comes from, is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is the vine and we are the branches. The root, the cause of grace is Jesus Christ alone and nothing of us. But the fruit of true grace, the effect that it has in our life is holiness. The fruit of grace is obedience to the Word of God. The way that you know what is true about the root of a tree is by the fruit that it produces. And we would never say that we change our nature, that we create our own root of holiness. The Word of God continually proclaims that we are a dead tree, that we produce bad fruit but that the Lord Jesus came and gave us a new heart, that He changed us by grace alone. Why? So that we would produce good fruit. And if every someone teaches that God's grace means that Christians are free to sin, that fruit does not matter, they have misunderstood and have perverted the true grace of God. If grace is ever used as a cover for drunkenness and sensuality, for gossip or disobedience, it is not true grace. It is a fake. And within the reform movement, within churches that we would even call our brotherhood, there has been a disturbing perversion of grace that severs the root of grace from the fruit of grace, that teaches we might claim to be sons of God even if we act like sons of the devil. And that is not true grace. For true grace does not free us to sin. It frees us from sin. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, right? We want, we want grace to abound and if grace is displayed through the forgiveness of sins, should we just keep on sinning? By no means, says Paul. How can we who died to sin still live in it? True grace does not come by works. But true grace works. True grace empowers us to die to sin and live to righteousness and obedience. Over the summer, the youth group invited April, my wife, and me to speak to them about the importance of involvement in the church. The format of the time was an interview in which students were able to submit questions and then April and I would answer them. They did a number of these interviews on different topics throughout the summer. And one of the students posed this question to their pastor. Do you have to go to church to be saved? Is church attendance a mark of true grace? Being active in the body of Christ, is that a mark of truly being one with Christ? How do you think I answered that question? Because it gets at some very fundamental questions about the Christian life and salvation. 
Now we know that true grace does not come from attending a church service. We do nothing to earn grace. Jesus has done it all. And so, no, to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you do not need to go to church. The thief on the cross never made it to church Sunday morning. But Jesus promised that he would feast with him in paradise. He had received grace. However, true grace does produce certain fruits. There are results of the work of salvation in our lives. There are purposes that God has for saving us. And in his letter, Peter wrote in chapter 1, that God has purified our souls. Why? Why has He purified our souls? Why has He given us grace? For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, the true grace of God is evidenced in the creation of a new spiritual family. Peter has written of the true grace of God. That is, God who causes us to be born again into a family. That through God and through the preaching of His Word that we are nourished like infants. That we are built into a spiritual house. That we become members of a holy nation and a royal priesthood. That we who were once not a people are now God's people. That we are the very household of God. And now as the letter ends, we see this new family on display. For in our concluding verses, we see the evidence of the true grace of God creating a family of love and affection. Silvanus, the one who delivered this letter, is a called a faithful brother. The church in Rome, that's what she who is at Babylon refers to as the church in Rome, is sending greetings. And so does Mark, a fellow servant of the Lord who was not Peter's biological son, but his son in the Lord. And all are called to greet one another with a kiss of love, a culturally appropriate display of affection between the members of the body of Christ. How can you tell true grace from fake grace? True grace from a knockoff form of grace? The true grace of God creates a new loving family in Christ. It creates a brotherhood of love and of care and of affection. And if there is no love for the body of Christ, if there are not brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, fathers and mothers within the church, then we do not know the true grace of God. For the resounding testimony of Scripture is that those who have received the true grace of God will love one another. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. He says that we are to bear with one another in love. Peter has said in this very letter, above all, above all, keep loving one another. And Jesus taught us saying, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. By this, by what? How are people going to know that we truly have received the grace of God? If you have love for one another. How will we see true grace displayed in our lives? We love one another. We love the body 
of Christ above all things. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, when his mother and his brothers came knocking because they thought he had gone crazy. And the people said, your mother and your brothers at the door. And he said, who are my true mother? Who are my true brothers? But you, you who have been joined to me through faith, you are my true brothers. The true grace of God is evidenced when we love the family of God, when we serve and give and sacrifice ourselves for this body, when we join together in affection and care and worship. And if your version of the grace of God is so self-centered and so self-serving that you have no love for the body of Christ, then I would be so bold as to say that you do not know the true grace of God. For we will know Christ's disciples by their fruit. That is, by the fruit of the love that they have for one another. We all knew that there was no way my grandfather had a Rolex. But there was enough doubt and, dare I say, hope that made us go to a jeweler to make sure because my grandfather could really work a yard sale. Now, there are telltale signs that a Rolex is a fake, so you pay attention now. Fakes usually weigh quite a bit less than the real thing. The second hand of a real Rolex will sweep across the face, whereas a fake will kind of tick across. The lettering of a fake is never as crisp and sharp as the real thing, and the serial number is often missing from a fake. And so when we handed this watch with great excitement over to the jeweler, he took it in hand, looked at it, and it took him about one second to say, it's fake. You see, for the trained eye, it really isn't that hard. It really isn't that hard to see the difference between what is real and what is fake. The true grace of God has telltale signs. We see, we know, it is written, it's been proclaimed that it is free. That it is nothing of us. The grace of God, the true grace of God, though, does not leave us the way that we are, but it changes us. It empowers us. It produces fruit. And ultimately, it produces the fruit of a loving family, a spiritual house, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you now at this time. And we admit that the darkness of this world and of our own hearts causes us to seek to go after false forms of grace. Whether it be seeking to earn grace by our own works or whether it be to ignore the call to holiness and obedience or whether it be to isolate ourselves and to look only to our own needs. Lord, we know that fake grace abounds. But Your grace, true grace, is much more powerful. Has much more weight. And when it is seen, it is clear. And so we pray, O God, 
thanksgiving for the way that You have poured grace upon grace out upon this body. We thank You for the love that is here, that is evidenced among this body here at Rivermont. And we pray, O God, that You would continue to pour out such grace upon us. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.